A reading from Exodus. The angel of God, who was going before the Israelite army, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and took its place behind them. It came between the army of Egypt and the army of Israel, and so the cloud was there with the darkness, and it lit up the night. One did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry land, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and chariot drivers. At the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and cloud, looked down upon the Egyptian army and threw the Egyptian army into panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty. The Egyptians said, let us flee from the Israelites for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and chariot drivers. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at dawn the sea returned to its normal depth. As the Egyptians fled before it, the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the chariot drivers. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the Israelites walked on dry ground through the sea the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great work that the Lord did against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The word of the Lord. A reading from Romans. Welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Some believe in eating anything, while the weak only eat vegetables. Those who eat must not despise those who abstain, and those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat, for God has welcomed them. Who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall, and they will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Some judge one day to be better than another, while others judge all days to be alike. Let all be fully convinced in their own minds. Those who observe the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. Also, those who eat, eat in honor of the Lord, since they give thanks to God, while those who abstain, abstain in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. We do not live to ourselves, and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. 
why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each of us will be accountable to God. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often I should forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of God may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions, and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before the king, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. Well, then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused. And then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. If you don't mind, I'm just going to chase a quick rabbit with you and tell you why I love Scripture so much. As I was just listening to that reading from Romans, I just couldn't help but smile because last week I did this little race, and you know when you do races, sometimes they give you these things called swag bags. They have like shirts and stickers. Mine only had one thing, and it. It, st- it was a sticker that said, Beef Eating Texans, right? So the, 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 the race was apparently sponsored by the Texas Beef Council, and, and it occurred to me, the Bible is so helpful, because there's the perfect verse here for beef eating Texans, the weak only eat vegetables. Um, <laughs> my sticker didn't say that. Anyway, um, now what I really wanted to talk to you about um, is that ostensibly we've got two readings today that just sort of work delightfully in the realm of poetic justice. The first reading from Exodus, you know, the Hebrew people have just been freed after the 10 plagues, and they're on their way to Israel. Pharaoh said, you can go. And they're up against the sea, and and they don't know how to swim, and, and... the sea in, in, in the Bible is this symbol of evil and chaos, so they're really stuck between chaos and Pharaoh's army. And, and Pharaoh, remember, is the one who said you can go. 
He said, you can leave. And he changed his mind and decided he's going to go out in the desert and either take them back or, 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 or kill them. And, and this is when the people cry out, and, and of course they're mad at God. They're not hopeful. God opens up the sea. God opens up the chaos, leads the people through, and then the poetic justice happens, right? The sea that was so threatening to the people becomes their salvation. And the sea is what swallows up Pharaoh's army so that not even the horses are spared. And of course, one way to read the story is you mess with God, and that's what happens. You get smoten or smitten. <laughs> Fair enough. There's a parable as well can read that way. You know, our often approach, I mean, Jesus says uh, the kingdom of God could be like this. There's a slave that is a king, 10,000 talents. Now, in modern-day currency, a talent doesn't really, the, the equivalent is, is difficult. Let me just tell you, 10,000 talents is more money than there is in the world. So a servant owns his master this is, this is the good number we made up as children, right? A bajillion dollars or a gajillion dollars. Now, you've got to stop and think, this is such a ridiculous figure. No king, first of all, has that much money to begin with, nor would a king lend that kind of money to a servant. And how cute when the servant says, be patient with me and I will pay you back. No, you won't. <laughs> Uh, the only way you can rack up that kind of debt is by playing the commodities market. I mean, this is really important to say. So, so I ne- see she played the market, right? She knows the story. So um, y- y- what happens in the story, right, is the king is compassionate and says, don't worry about it, debt canceled, okay? And, and then comes the poetic justice. The servant goes to another one who owes him, by the way, $500, which is paybackable, and says, give me the money you owe me. And, and he says, be patient. No, I want it now, and has him thrown in jail. And then the king finds out the story, right? And the king says, I was merciful with you, and you weren't merciful with the other guy, so now I'm going to torture you till you die. And then comes that line, so will my heavenly father treat you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. It seems like at face value, Jesus might be saying, forgive or else. Now, I'm going to tell you, I've lived much of my faith life reading these stories at that literal level. Forgive or else. Mess with God and you get drowned. Sure, I heard God was love, you know, but only if you forgive. You ever lived with this tension in your faith faith life? Forgive or else, and God loves you. A little. A lot, unless you don't forgive. And then you get drowned, or tortured forever. And and, and so this, this in some ways, is is a tendency I think we have to read stories. And and if that's the case, and I put before you that not only is God no better than we are, because that's how we treat each other all the time. God is better at retributive vengeance than we are. Right? Because we can't torture somebody forever. We don't have the resources to do that. I want to tell you, I think this is about something different. And, and, and the reason I think that is the frame that comes at the beginning of the story. 
Peter comes up to Jesus and says, if my brother sins against me in church, how many times should I forgive him? And Peter comes up with a wildly liberal guess because the Jewish law said one time, just once in life, you get one forgiveness, one bye. Should I do it seven times, Jesus? And seven, you got to know, isn't just like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven's like a magical number in the Bible. The word seven in Hebrew is the word Shabbat, from which we get the word Sabbath. It means perfection. Should I forgive my brother a bunch of perfect times, Jesus? That'd be so liberal. And Jesus says, I'll tell you what, not just Shabbat times, but Shabbat to the Shabbat power. Now that number is huge, when you haven't gone to secondary school or middle school. It may as well be, Jesus said, a bajillion times. Forgive your brother a bajillion times. And then he tells this story. It's rather confusing, right? It seems like the story is doing the opposite thing of the frame, doesn't it? You know, there's this weird thing that happens in the story that the king forgives the slave and then later decides to unforgive the slave. (laughs) That would be like your mortgage company contacting you and saying, good news, you now have a zero balance. And and then you collect rental income from another property you own and they say, wait a minute, we found out you collected rent. (laughs) So now we're reinstating your balance you would say, you can't do that. You've already zeroed the balance. How can you forgive a debt and then call the debt? I mean, the story is not even internally coherent. Now, I want to tell you, I think the story is actually, I mean, another way to read the story, (laughs) the way I'm hearing it this week, is is, uh, actually, this is a clever, clever way that Jesus is saying something about forgiveness, that it's supposed to be bold and unlimited and perfection squared, and then testing to see where our hearts actually are. So we get the teaching, forgive without limit. You just heard it. The question is, what will you practice? Let me illustrate this with another story. About 10 years ago, um, I was teaching math at, at a little a Christian school out in San Diego, and we took a group of about 17 high schoolers at the time to the area right outside the, the nice belt that USC has created for its campus. So if you know anything about LA, USC is in a not great neighborhood, but they bought up a buffer to make it nice. So we were outside the buffer. <laughs> and it, it, it's a very low-income neighborhood. It's got extreme international diversity. And there we were for a week trying to do service projects for the community. Um, so, so our little group would do work during the day, like um, we turned a house into a community center for teen pregnancy. That was our specific job. And when we got done working, we were supposed to do things that just sort of made me shiver, um, imagining them happening here. We, <laughs> this group of, of, of 15 white teenagers and me, um, walking around the streets of this non-buffer neighborhood, and we had to ask the residents what they liked about living in their neighborhood. This was extremely uncomfortable because, of course, I imagined they had no choice, right? They lived here because that's where they could afford, and we're this sort of mob of people that clearly don't belong here, and, and you know, they're just, I, I don't know who was more afraid of one another, the poor residents, right, or, or, or us. Anyway, people were really kind, and they answered the question, and they had some really 
I mean, it's actually some really thoughtful and surprising responses. And, and so here we were this week of solidarity with, honestly, the working poor and people who were homeless. And I was particularly filthy because I'd been redoing plumbing underneath this place. Um, so I was on my back and in the dirt in this crawl space. I, I, I had given up shaving for Lent, so I had this really nasty beard. Um, it was awful. And while I was soldering, you know, the solder would drip and it would burn up the hair in some certain spots. So I mean, I just looked like somebody special. And uh, one day I got done working. It was the fourth day, and the next day we were going to have breakfast and leave. And I wanted to take my team out to breakfast because we'd, we'd, we'd been buying groceries on $5 a day. So, I mean, we'd, we'd really been living like the residents in the neighborhood, quite honestly. And, and I want to take them out to a nice place. And I had somebody given me money to do that. And I was trying to figure out where to do it. So I went to USC. And I asked some of the people who worked in the little restaurants, you know, like Chipotle and Salada, hey, is there a nice place for breakfast? And of course, they didn't live in the neighborhood. They just came there to work. So they had no idea. And then I saw two of my people. Y- you know, when you're a stranger and you see your people, um, there was a, uh, a young man and a young lady, and they had a USC law sweater on. Now, I had just come from Emory, which is like the USC in Atlanta, less spoiled and higher academic, of course. Um, <laughs> so I had just come from there. And, and Emory Law School is rated above the USC Law School to this day. And my wife uh, was a law school student. And had turned down both of those places to go where she went. But, you know, these are my, these are my people, little Methodist school people. And um, remember, I was really dirty. Um, and I, I, I said to them in passing, hey, could you help me out? And uh, let me just tell you, opposite of not even slowing down, they sped up. <laughs> uh, this, you know, this didn't bother me. I had a pretty high pain threshold. I said, hey, um, listen, I'm, I'm here from out of town. And I've got a group, and I'm trying to take them to breakfast. Do you know if we can eat in the USC cafeteria? Um, girl did not slow down or turn. Boy <laughs> turned his head, sort of avoided eye contact very carefully, and said, we're with the law school. Now, now um, I have to admit I was flabbergasted, you know. Uh, where my head was going was, my wife goes to a better law school than you do, and I went to a better school than you do, and really, um, what I wanted to say most was, I'm not homeless, how dare you treat me like I'm homeless. Of course, but that's when I realized that this whole exercise I'd spent on the week, I'd just missed right? I had just missed myself. And in some ways, um, I I did this scenario and came out realizing how prejudiced I'd been the whole week. I wonder if that isn't how Jesus is using the story. I wonder if Jesus isn't saying, here's a principle, Peter, church, forgive limitlessly. And then he tells this story, and when I hear it, I can tell you my heart says, that unmerciful servant got exactly what he deserved. I wonder if the story isn't to reveal how we didn't believe what Jesus said in the first place. We should forgive without limit. 
because at the end of the story, I am not forgiving. I'm mad. How dare he not forgive $500 when he just got forgiven a bajillion dollars? And I think we have these opportunities before us to remind us that there is this lifetime of living into our values, and that's called discipleship. You see, the truth is, most of us know how we ought to be living. The truth is, we're just not doing it. <laughs> but in general, we know how we ought to be living. And, and, and in general, we know, if we just stop and think about it a little bit, that the whole bit that happened at the Reed Sea, where the whole army and the horses get drowned, that's not even fair, is it? You know, I mean, really, it's not fair. First of all, the horses didn't do anything wrong, right? They're just horses. But, but similar to the horses, Pharaoh's not drowned. Have you ever noticed that? The army is destroyed and Pharaoh is not. Now, sure, that represents a military loss for him, but it didn't hurt him. Who died were a bunch of people in the military who were following orders and had very little or no choice. Sort of like when my dad got back from Vietnam and he told me after being on the front for a year that a communist is a man trying to feed his family. It's one of those things that we often forget when we think about the villains and the bad side or those people who don't have choices. I'm pretty sure that's where the Romans passage is asking us to consider. And all of this, of course, is very helpful when we think about forgiveness is that we often judge people without realizing their situation. We often say, only weak people are vegetarians. I don't know if we often say that. The Texas Beef Council might. Uh, I'm going to suggest they do, actually. Um, without considering the choices that they make. Without offering respect to see the world differently than we do. And in some ways, that compassion that people see the world differently from myself is what's at the root of forgiveness to begin with. And i got to tell you, I don't know if it's parables anymore that are tests. I, you've heard me say this, and I'm sorry I don't sound like a broken record, but I'll at least change the story a little bit. One of the things that I've noticed that functions like a parable, honestly, revealing where people's values might be, is Facebook. <laughs> Uh, and I'm just going to share with you that in the middle of Hurricane Harvey, um, there was this story about how Lakewood Church, that's Joel and Victoria Osteen, didn't let people in the building, which, by the way, had flooded. And, and I can tell you that I, I saw an, an unimaginable amount of vitriol against the Osteens by people who don't know them personally, who have never been to Lakewood Church and never had any intention of going. The hate spoken against the Osteens, it made me feel bad to be a human being. And I gotta tell you, uh, it's revelatory to see some of the things we post on social media. Some of the hatred that we have against people that we don't even know about offenses we're not even sure they committed. Again, apparently Lakewood flooded, right? And I gotta tell you, um, in some ways, I think this works like the story. And, and the good news, or, or the news is, I don't hate Joel and Victoria Osteen at all. I don't know them. I hate lots of other people. 
for worse reasons than people hate them. And, and I think that's exactly how this story is supposed to work. For us to have those moments where we say, I believe in forgiveness and I believe in generosity, but man, I sure don't like Steve. <laughs> and I've got a lot of good reasons why I don't like Steve. And we have those encounters, hopefully that's an opportunity for us not to say God must hate Steve too, but for us to grow into our values and say, God help me to see Steve as you do. Anne Lamott says a couple of interesting things. One, she says, I know I've made God in my own image when God hates the same people I do. Which is nice, isn't it? I've made God in my own image when God hates the same people I do. The other thing she says, which has to do with forgiveness, that I only want to talk about nominally here, even though this is theoretically about that. I mean, how is it that we, as human beings, can forgive limitlessly as Jesus is asking us to do? And, And we talked about this all Lent, that forgiveness does not mean a lack of accountability. Right? Those are different things. Forgiveness and accountability are different. Um, People who commit crimes, we have accountability for that. But forgiveness is about their fundamental dignity and worth as a human being, right? And and those things, actually, our law system um, does a very good job maintaining, right? That's why we're against cruel and unusual punishment. To torture somebody for their entire life because they owe a debt would be cruel and unusual punishment. I mean, they can't pay that, right? That would be cruel and unusual. Our legal system gets that, but sometimes I think our reptilian brain does it, and and we're just awfully harsh with each other. The other thing that we have to remember, right, is that forgiveness and reconciliation are different things. I can forgive somebody without having to live with them anymore. And Jesus is not telling us that we have to be um, (laughs) reconciled with people forever. He's saying it's in our best interest to forgive. Or as Anne Lamott says, forgiveness is giving up all hope of having had a different past. Now, these, these wise people, much wiser than I do, say that, of course, forgiveness is the greatest gift you can ever give yourself because it means you're no longer hurt by somebody or something that's been done to you. It means you're oriented toward your future and your present instead of your past. I'm positive that that's what Jesus wants for us, a future and present orientation instead of a past one, right? I'm also sure that his story reveals exactly what my therapist told me, that there's the 90-10 rule in situations. When we find ourselves very upset, 90% of it is from the past and 10% of it is from the present. (laughs) I think forgiveness must mean about living more in the 100% present, especially when we're hurt. And I know that's extremely difficult. That takes lots and lots of resources. And I think Jesus is inviting us to consider that. Consider whether we're putting into practice the virtues and values we say we have. Now for a little bit of sleight of hand. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's why we fill out pledge cards every year. (laughs) And I'm not just saying that because you get one today. Um, Having not grown up pledging, I didn't. I didn't grow up pledging. I'm pretty sure the reason we do it, or at least the appeal for me, is that every year I have this opportunity on a piece of paper and in church 
to think about whether or not I'm practicing the values that I ultimately want to model my life behind. Am I being generous with my time, with my talent, and with my resources? Because I sure do value that. The question is, am I doing it? The card invites me to sit down and think, how are you going to live your values this year? Well, that's why on our cards we ask about ministry, because that's just as important as everything else we do. Um, to sit and make a plan. Those things change, but I, but, I, but I think just like the parable, the reason we do some of these things is because we can grow very stale in thinking that we're living our values without actually reconsidering whether we're living our values. I'll tell you, the person who upset me with the Osteen post told me they would never say an unkind word to somebody. And of course they didn't because they don't know the Osteens, right? How, how could they? But there's this interesting thing when reality hits our conceptions of ourselves and what we do with it. And that's true, I think, not only of pledging and our generosity, I think that's especially true as we encounter people who are no longer theories or ideas, but real people who have really hurt us. And in some ways, you know, I, sometimes I'm glad we only do this once a year because I don't know if I could handle it every week. You know? Um, I just know Jesus asked me to handle it every week. <laughs> and that's why we only do it once a year so that we have enough time to consider where we're going to go and then do it week by week. And, and, and friends, this, this bit about pledging is just one thing, right? It's, it's, it's really about our time and our resources but I know what Christ is asking us to do every day is to think about the cognitive dissonance, the gap between who we're called to be and how we're walking now and whether or not we can't, with God's help, close it. And um, just to offer you a little bit of the tension I think we see when we read the Bible, um, there's something that our Jewish brothers and sisters do called Midrash. Maybe you've heard of it before. That's where there's a story in the Bible and it leaves some, uh, some gaps that people like to have filled, so they make up stories. And, <laughs> and those stories, some of them are so old and so authoritative um, that they've been written down and they've been memorized alongside Scripture. And there's one of these Midrash stories that happens in the Exodus account. In this story, every nation in the world is represented in heaven by an angel. So just imagine there's the angel of Haiti and the angel of uh, Papua New Guinea and the angel of Israel and Egypt. And they're all up in heaven and there's Israel trapped by the Reed Sea. And Michael, good name, right? The, the angel of Israel says, God, you've got to intervene. You've got to punish the Egyptians. And all the other angels representing the other nations say, no, God, you can't do that. You can't punish the nations there's innocent people in Egypt. So Michael flies down to earth and he goes to the city of Pithom that the, that the Israelites build to slave laborers. Then he removes a brick from one of the buildings that the Hebrew people built to slaves. And inside the brick that he brings up to heaven is the body of a Hebrew infant that's been put into the brick. And all the other angels in heaven see it. 
And they say, God, you must destroy the Egyptians for what they've done. And so God opens the reed sea up. Hebrews go through. The Egyptians come. God closes the water. And all the angels in heaven rejoice. They have a huge party. And God says, be silent. I just lost thousands of my children. The only sound you may make is to cry with me. That tension between what happens in the story and how God feels about it. Surely that's intention that God invites us to live. Surely that's the kind of God, or at least insight into the kind of God that we're being asked to follow. And I pray that as stewards of both forgiveness and our resources, we'll follow with generosity, with discipline. Amen.